Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hills country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up, up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge and of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor here at Trinity. We are, as you can see, we are in a series that we have entitled The Prayers of Advent. We're going to be in this over the next three to four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, and then Christmas is coming fast. Uh, my family has reflected, you know, that we're longing for Thanksgiving, and it's come, and it's gone, and we're full, and we're moving forward. We're already into December, and we're not that long from December 24th and 25th. And what's going to happen is we are, as a people, we are hungry. I've noticed that in my family, my family is ready. We are ready for Christmas. We are ready to celebrate. It has been a long few years. I shared this maybe a year ago where I said I felt like Christmas was really the only bright spot that I could remember in a difficult year called 2020. And now we are in the Christmas season of 2021. For many of you, the last two years have been hard. And so you get to these moments of tradition and sentiment and you start longing for something that's going to help fill you up. You're looking for some sort of aspect of joy, something that's familiar. And so we are going to kind of rush through December. It's going to be December 24th, then the 25th. You're going to go, did Christmas come and go? But in that season of hungering, that season of looking and longing is what Advent is all about. It's an appropriate feeling. 
So often we fill it with sentiment and tradition. We don't long for the arrival of God's Son. But this is what the season is about. It's about longing. It's about waiting. It's about expectation. In a year like 2021, we have a lot of that. And maybe God can use that in your life so that you don't skate through December and go, man, what just happened? It was a blitz and it's over. I'm already at New Year's looking towards 2022. Don't let that happen. Right? There's too much going on in your life for you to fly through this. And in part, that's what this season of prayer can be about, where you stop and you give voice to the prayer in your life and in your heart, even if you don't know, actually, that it is a prayer. Um, if you're familiar with Christianity, if you've been around the church for a season, you may be more familiar with themes like wise men that are searching for a baby king. You may be familiar with this idea of Mary and Joseph being sent away from home because of a census. They've got to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. We've got all of these unique angels showing up and giving an announcement. But you're maybe not as familiar with the prayers of Christmas, the prayers of Luke 1 and 2, that really give a lot of depth and meaning to the longings that these individuals would have experienced in this story. And so that's why we're going to be putting our time there. Um, similar to the writer John, we're going to take a pause from John, of course, through Advent, then we're going to resume with the book of John in the new year. But similar to the writer John, Luke gives us his purpose statement. It comes at the beginning of his book in Luke 1, verse 4, where Luke, Luke, Luke writes that these things have been written, quote, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Think about that. He writes it so that you may have certainty about what's recorded in Luke 1, 2, and then through the end of the book. Now, for many of you, if you're on the outside of Christianity, you're saying to yourself, well, this story, Luke 1 and 2, is actually the reason that I have a lot of doubt and suspicion about Christianity in general, because we're talking about angels showing up. You're telling me that God himself was incarnate into the womb of a virgin, a young teenager. Her name was Mary 2,000 years ago. You want me to agree to that, that that's at the essence and the core of your faith. We have all of these unique, miraculous things happening in the Luke story, in the Christmas narrative. This is why I'm actually not a Christian, because it's too incredible to believe. Rebecca McLaughlin, she says, for many of us, the angel is the fairy on top of the Christmas tree of implausibility. The virgin birth, wise men guided by a star, it seems the stuff of fairy tales. But I want to suggest that these strange-sounding supernatural claims should not be dismissed because if there is a God who made the universe, it's quite rational to believe the Christmas miracles. In fact, it would be irrational to discount them. Listen, the reality is the original audience had as many questions as you may have. doesn't matter if you've been in the church for a long time or if you're new to Christianity. You read these stories and sometimes you go, really? Angels, wise men, virgin birth? See, but what it's saying is if, this, if God is real, if the narrative is true, then why couldn't this also be part of his narrative, part of his coming into our world? And so we want to lean into the truthfulness of the story so that you might have certainty about what was written. I'm going to take you through three things today. Number one, the incarnation or the reality of Jesus or his birth on our planet. It's a fancy word to just talk about the doctrines of Christmas. The incarnation tells us three things. Number one, that hope comes from the outside. Number two, that we are lost but loved. And number three, the incarnation tells us that our own satisfaction is bound up in him. 
Those three things I think we get from Zechariah's prayer today. So let me take you to a brief introduction to Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you happen to have a Bible or a phone app, I would encourage you to pull it out for this sermon. I may be taking you to different portions of chapter 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have a couple on the back table that you could use today and take with you, our gift to you. But I'd love for you to begin bringing them more regularly. I know it seems like a foreign thing. I grew up in a church where we actually had pews and there were hymnals and there were Bibles in front of us, but we don't do that as much anymore. But I would love for you to bring your Bibles and at minimum, flip open that phone. If you have questions on a good app to use, let me know. We'll help you. But there's a Bible in the back. But chapter 1, verse 5, a little introduction to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Here's what we read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." The very brief introduction that we are given to Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they are described as faithful followers of Yahweh. They are righteous. They love to follow what he says. They are prayerful prayer warriors. These are people who have been following this king for a long time. It says that they are righteous, that they do good. One of them's a priest. One of them's from the lineage of Aaron, the first priest. So it's this really unique, righteous, holy, loving couple. But the reality is... Even good people, they face very difficult things. And it says that they have no children. Elizabeth was barren. What's interesting about this is we ask the question of just the, the difficulty that somebody who's following Yahweh may bump up against. Why do these lovely people not have a child? What's going on in their world? See, in the ancient Near East, even in these righteous communities, even amongst the Jews, people would have leaned in with suspicion. They would have said, but listen, I know that they're good. I see how faithful they are. Are they harboring something hidden in their lives? This would have been a topic of immense shame for this couple. That all these questions would have swirled, all the gossip in their little town. What's up with Zechariah and Elizabeth? How come there's no baby? This is what's going on in the back background of this story. And of course, we're told that they are advanced in years, which means that the window for having a baby has closed on this elderly couple. Now, some of the other detail that we're given tells us that Zechariah was chosen by lot to serve in the temple of the Lord. And as he was performing his priestly duties, lo and behold, after 400 years, an angel shows up. I was talking to my kids about how long 400 Hundred years is 400 years of silence. Our nation isn't even 400 years old yet. 400 years of waiting. You read through the Old Testament, God is showing up, God is speaking, and then you have these people who are longing maybe God's going to show up, maybe He's not. Maybe He's gone dormant. Maybe all the stories weren't true. But here they are, faithfully serving God, going into the temple week after week, offering sacrifices, doing the duty, doing the ritual. Maybe God's going to show up. Maybe he won't in my lifetime. I don't think Zechariah had any expectation that an angel was going to show up and tell him, lo and behold, all those prayers that you've prayed, they have been heard, Zechariah, and they're going to be answered. And you're going to have a baby, and your elderly wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son, and you're going to call his name John. 
Now, because he's not a younger man anymore, let's just be honest, let's humanize this for a moment. He's in his elderly years. We don't know exactly how old he is, but well beyond childbearing years. He's got doubt. He's got skepticism, and he wonders, could this be true? And he voices that. I would have voiced that. Like, come on, Mr. Angel Man, Gabriel, okay. It's been a long time, 400 years. Am I really seeing all this? Is this really real? Are you speaking to me? You know the the things that I've been thinking about. You know we're longing for a baby. You're telling me it's going to come true? Are you sure? And he voices that. And as part of this narrative, he is rendered mute and unable to speak for the entire duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He's not going to be able to speak until all of these things come to pass, which means she has to conceive. The baby has to uh, um, come to to life nine months later. The baby has to be born. And then when they name this baby, he's going to be able to speak. Consider the nine months of silence, what that would have been like. Some of you are like, man, I wish my husband had nine months of silence. <clears throat> nine months of silence is a long time to sit and watch and reflect and pray and think and wait. I mean, and he's looking at his wife. Let's just assume she's in her 70s. Maybe she's in her 80s. And he is looking at that belly every single day, and he watches it grow. He's got to be sitting there going, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, it's getting bigger. This thing is really happening. What is he thinking to himself while he watches and he waits and he thinks and he prays and he remembers what was spoken to him through this angel that says, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah, which means after 400 years of waiting, the Messiah is about to show up. I mean, this is not a small deal, right? I mean, he's excited that he's got a son, but he's really excited that the Messiah that's been promised is going to show up in his lifetime. So when he goes to pray on that eighth day, they take the baby to the temple to to circumcise this baby. As per their traditions, they begin to ask, what's the baby's name going to be? Everybody thinks it's going to be named after Papa Z, right? Papa Zachariah. He goes, no, 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 not after me. It's got to be named John. And the moment that he writes that on the tablet, he doesn't get to speak it yet. The moment that he writes it by faith, the baby's name is going to be John. He begins to speak again and begins to sing again. He begins to pray out this beautiful section of Scripture from this beginning part of the narrative of Jesus and the arrival. And if you look at the detail, flip open your phone. I believe some of it will be on the screen. When his tongue is set free, beginning in verse 67... Look at what he does through his prayer. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Isn't it interesting? what he speaks about after nine months of silence and waiting. This portion of Scripture is sometimes called the Benedictus because this verse begins, blessed, verse 68. In the Latin, that is the word Benedictus. This is where this has come from. We're going to look at Mary's prayer. It's also called the Magnificat because that's the first word in the Latin. Benedictus is the first word in the Latin in this text. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's telling that when we see Zechariah speak for the first time, and he's an older older man waiting for a baby, and he has a son. He doesn't talk about his son. He doesn't talk about John. 
He doesn't talk about his wife, Elizabeth. He doesn't talk about the nine months. He doesn't praise God for any of that. He praises God for the fact that things have been promised, things have been spoken. We have been waiting a long time, but you are going to make good on your promise. A Messiah is coming. This is where he goes. He blesses God for sending a Redeemer, for saving the people from their enemies, from those who hated God's people. He blesses God for remembering to bring mercy. We thought you forgot. But you haven't forgotten. You are sending a redeemer. Hope was always part of the Jewish narrative. This has been a people that have been under the thumb of an oppressive regime for a long time. If you look at, hist- if you look at the history of Israel, they were ruled by foreign nations for many centuries. It begins all the way back in 587 with the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the 4th century, the Greeks. And then in 63 BC, the Jewish people were put under the Roman uh, oppression. These are people who have been oppressed for a long time, waiting and hoping. Somebody going to bring us out of this? Something going to change our circumstance? We've gone from the Babylonians to the Persians, now to the Greeks and now the Romans. What is going on? And we want freedom. We want to be set free again. Isn't this what he says in verse 74? They wanted to be able to live and worship and serve their God without fear. See, but Zechariah, as a priest of God, he understood more than most that the biggest problem facing God's people wasn't geopolitical, right? It wasn't external. It wasn't cultural. It was internal and personal. Look at verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He goes to sin. Tim Keller writes, today we believe that things are dark, but we believe that we can end that darkness with intellect and innovation. We have the light within us, and so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. Man, we live in a society, moment, and culture where the innovation, where the technology, where the intellect, where the education is something that we lean into heavily for a better tomorrow. We can just think our way to better policies. We can change the world around us if we just rally together. We, in essence, have the light. We are the light of the world. Without the Holy Spirit, without reference to God, we can change things. This is the essence of humanism. We are at the center of the narrative. And listen, from one angle, Christianity affirms that. Absolutely, we should fight for that which is good for more people, policies and procedures and laws, a more unjust and equitable society. But the Bible clearly says that the light is not in us. Here's how Keller puts it later. He says, the Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead things really are this bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. A beautiful tension held within Christianity that there's darkness in the world, there are enemies to be defeated, but the biggest one is an external. It's in your own life, it's in your own family dynamic, it's in your own heart, and a Savior was sent for that reason. Consider the image of a foxhole. 
And you have a few soldiers who have been separated from their platoon, and they are caught in this hole, and they are surrounded by an entire enemy army. And these men and women, they look at one another, and they realize that they have a few guns, they've got a few grenades, and they are thinking to themselves that they have a plan to win the war themselves from inside the foxhole. We've got what it takes to be able to defeat defeat the enemy army. If they carry through with that plan, you know where it's headed. They're not going to be going home. It's going to end in their demise and their death. If they assume that from inside of this little space that we have what it takes to be able to find salvation, to find rescue. The reality is in that moment, they need nothing less than the most glorious air raid that's ever been showered upon somebody who's been lost. They need rescue from the outside, not the inside. And this is exactly what Christianity says. This is the message of Christmas. A better day has been promised and is in fact coming. Suffering, sin, and death, all of them have an expiration date. Our enemies will be defeated, but as the biggest enemy is inside of us, number one, something has to be able to forgive sin and heal the human heart. And number two, you are not the solution. The incarnation tells us, number one, hope comes from the outside. Number two, We are lost but loved. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're saying, preacher, I hear what you're saying, but that's offensive to me. I mean, that's true, isn't it? If you stop to think about the dynamic of what we are talking about in the arrival of God's Son on our planet, it's offensive. Because what we are essentially saying is that we are so lost that Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come. Verse 68 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed. He's purchased. It costs something to save you. That's what the word redeemed means biblically. He redeemed us, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. That's important because what he's saying is is not a new story. This is not a new story. It says what God has been planning from the very beginning. It was spoken about. The people should have expected it. You should be waiting for it. This is what Advent's about. It's about reminding you that God has been planning and plotting for a long time. But you're lost. But you're loved. Deeply lost and confused. But he's coming for you. I'm going to talk about those two ideas of a savior versus a coach. Or a savior versus a tutor and a teacher. Let me talk about the dynamic of a savior. It's really quite simple and pretty straightforward. A savior's job is to save the day, save the business, save the family, save the team. Marvel's plot lines would essentially be nothing if there was no Thanos, for example, who's coming to end your world and all the other worlds. A savior has to show up to save the day, to save the world. Let's talk about the dynamic that maybe you're more familiar with which is a coach, tutor, and teacher. These positions have a very different dynamic than a savior. I love coaching. Yesterday I went to my son's basketball practice and I couldn't help but kind of coach. I'm not the coach, okay? But I stood in the middle of the gymnasium with my youngest while the oldest is practicing and I went over to the coach and I said, I'd love to help you. You Just tell me what I can do. I'm just gonna be sitting here at midcourt. You need me, I'm here. 
So there's a couple of drills that were going on. The kids would come, and I'd try to swipe it from them and tell them, like, you know, keep it low. This is basketball practice. I just can't help myself. But a coach is trying to bring out somebody's potential. Something's dormant. You have the light within you. You've lost the light. Let me coach you to the top. I'm trying to bring it out of you. Jesus clearly is not a coach. This is not his message. Hey, it's in you. You've got the light. Let me help you become your best version of yourself. This is an over-realized, spiritualized version of self-actualization. This is a Christianized version of self-help. Jesus does not leave that option open to us. This is not what Christmas is about. Let's look at this together. Zechariah's prayer asks us to more fully and honestly evaluate how you relate to Jesus. If Jesus is an instructor, if he functions in your life merely as a good teacher, then our relationship is just principle-driven. It's not personal. Help me take a next step, Jesus. Help me deal with my past. Help me deal with the present. Help me deal with my fear. Help me deal with my insecurity. Give me some next tool to help me along in this spiritual journey. Jesus is not the Swami of spirituality. He's the Savior of the world. Very different things. How do you relate to Jesus? Now listen, Jesus will help you. Jesus will instruct you. Jesus is a great teacher and a great philosopher. But how do you first relate to him? Jesus, give me just some spiritual tips. i got to move this thing forward. My life's not going so well. If you would just come and be my little helper. He has not left that option open to us. Anyone who makes the claims that Jesus made, who says that he's one with the Father, who says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that says he's the embodiment of the temple, that he's the place where heaven and earth collide, the one who says that he can forgive sin, he's not merely a good guy ready to coach you forward in life. Either he's the savior of the world and he deserves to be worshiped, or he's a radical and you need to ignore him because he's dangerous. Right? C.S. Lewis says there's no middle ground. You have to decide how you're going to relate to this king and this person who's shown up on our planet. Zechariah praises the Lord for visiting his people and for raising up a savior who would defeat our most personal enemy, the one who is found inside of each of us, our sin. Christianity says that you are so lost that Jesus had to come. His trip on our, into our planet was not a sightseeing adventure. It was not a pleasure cruise gone wrong. It was an all-out, no-holds-barred, special forces rescue mission. This is what Christianity says. God didn't commission a prophet. He didn't commission a priest or a politician. He sends his own son. The question is why? Luke 19 tells us. Luke 19.10. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But how? Well, he did it by finding us, but by getting lost himself. This is what the cross is about. You're so lost, you can't find yourself. You can't find your way. The light's not in you until God breathes new life, redemption, and restoration into your soul. He had to come. He had to come or you're lost. The image of the foxhole, I mean, you're in it. Sin has created a distance surrounded by an enemy out there who wants to destroy you, namely the devil, and the enemy inside that wants to manipulate, twist all of those desires, all of that past brokenness, all of the things in your life that are difficult and say, God doesn't love you. Love yourself, put yourself at the center. And we say yes to that more quickly than we say yes to a savior. 
And he says, I have come to heal that, to fix that, and to redeem that by getting lost himself. Listen, recently my brother, I've got a, a larger family, three other siblings, and my youngest brother, he and his wife went to Florida, and they're from Nashville, Tennessee, and they got on an airplane with their little boy. They went to, to uh, Florida to visit her family, and they texted our family somewhere in that trip and said, listen, Sarah woke up, and her ring got snagged on a blanket, and she looked closely at her engagement ring, and the diamond's gone. And you go, that's a big deal. This is one of the most precious things that a family has uh, in their possession, especially this woman, this wife. And so they're praying that we would find it, and we're going charismatic on them. We're like praying, Lord Jesus, find this diamond. It could be in the ocean, float it to the top. We don't know what's going on. Where is this diamond? They go to the beach. They come back. They search around. They're pretty much giving up. Grandma's there. Great-grandma's there. Everybody's on their hands and knees looking for this thing. They spend around 24 hours searching, praying, crying. They cannot find it. And so they gather one last time, and they go, let's just pray that if it's here, if it's in this home, we don't know if it's at the airport, on an airplane, at the beach. We don't know where it is. But if it's in this home, we pray that the Lord would help us to find it. And sure enough, he texted us a little bit later, we found it. They found that little speck floating on the floor underneath uh, the, the little guy's, um, what's this thing called, the baby sits into Eden? I've forgotten. I, my children are older. A high chair. <laughs> underneath the high chair in the big mess on the floor, there was a diamond, right? There was a diamond. Nothing says I love you and you're valuable like a hunt and a pursuit. You are valuable. I'm after you. And isn't this why in Luke chapter 15, you see this beautiful image of God's love where he says, let me tell you what God's love is like. It's like somebody who lost a coin and it's like a sheep that's been lost. There's 99 others and there's one missing. Go out and find it. And he talks about a lost son. When God wants to display his love to us, he talks about things that are lost, being found again. Nothing says I love you like I'm coming for you. See, this is what Christianity is about. This is what Christmas is about. The good news of Christianity is that you are lost beyond self-discovery. That's the good news of Christianity. You are a sinner. You are in a state or condition of chronic curvature inward when you should be in a consistent state of curvature upward. But he says, I'm coming for you to change the dynamic of your heart. You are lost, but you are found in Jesus. You're a sinner, but there's a Savior, right? So the incarnation, the doctrines of Christmas tell us that we are lost, but we are loved. And finally and quickly, number three, Christmas tells us that our own satisfaction is bound up in him. Our deepest, truest desires are powerfully and providentially tied to the arrival of God's Son on our planet. N.T. Wright says this. It's a mark not only of Luke's skill as a writer, but also of the nature of the God he's writing about, that both the big picture and the smaller human stories matter totally. This story is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes, yes, but the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story. Love that. Because here's a couple who just wants a baby. God pays attention to what's going on in their life. God does fulfill the desire of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in this particular story, doesn't he? But in those nine months of silence, in those nine months of waiting, 
all of those desires begin to swirl in his life and in his heart. What he's thinking about, what he's recollecting, what he's been longing for, what he's hoping for in the future. What's this baby really going to be like? There's a Messiah coming. And he begins to rejoice and to pray, not about God's provision of his son, as important as that is, but he's rejoicing that God has lifted up a Savior, that a Savior's coming, that even if I don't have a son, I am saved forever, that even if I don't get exactly what I want in the moment, God has brought about the fulfillment of the promise. God is so good, and what my life really needs is redemption, and he's given it. The biggest issues in your life are settled in the reality of Jesus, your purpose, your meaning, Power, identity, all of these big things, what does it mean to be human, are settled in the arrival of God's Son. And yet, amidst all of that, he doesn't diminish the personal longings, does he? And he provides, and he fulfills, and he's sensitive, and he's kind, and he's sweet, and he's Emmanuel, which means that he's God with us in the long wait for fulfillment. Emmanuel means that God has tremendous empathy. He is with us. With us means that he sees you, that he knows your life. He's stepped in your shoes. He's lived the life that you've lived. He knows disappointment. He knows grief. He even knows death. And because he's God, what that means is that he's the one who's able to fulfill you, that he's the thing that's going to lift you to a new space, to a new understanding of life and purpose. It's about him. And so there's this mingling, isn't there, in the story of God providing for a couple what they needed, but him ultimately saying, I'm the great gift. I'm the greatest gift. If you have nothing else, you have everything in Jesus. And because he's sweet and because he's tender, because he's Emmanuel, he's with us in the waiting and the longing and the praying. Let me end there. We get to look at this, these dynamics of prayer over the next few weeks. But let me just lead you in a moment of prayer as a church, as a congregation. What's God putting on your heart in this season? Don't just speed towards Christmas. Sit in it with him. Let me lead us. Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. We have been reminded once that you're a God of promise and provision. And we'll be reminded again when you come again. That the storyline is true, that our king is victorious, that his life, death, and resurrection were effective. We're not looking for quick fixes. We're looking for a savior. And so we pause together. What a strange experience to be quiet in a room with people, to be reflective upon our own need, our own life. But Holy Spirit, we pray that you descend here right now. And what was prayed by Zechariah so long ago, his joy and his hope, his expectation of a Savior, his excitement over John. He's going to lead people to an experience of repentance. John was the forerunner preparing the hearts of men and women in so many ways. That is our role too. So prepare us to tell people about you. A message that is so much bigger, better, more beautiful than we expected. Would you restore awe in our hearts? I also pray you'd bring us to our knees. That you would break us open. That you would show us that we don't have to hide anymore. That you have come to redeem, heal, and forgive. We are lost, but you have come to tell us how loved we are. What freedom there is in that experience. May we sing of it today.
In Jesus' name, amen.